Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday at 10 till 1. I'm back after Danny Finkelstein held the fort while I went and got completely drenched in Cornwall last week. And because it was a bank holiday Monday, we thought we'd have a bit of fun on the show today and ask the question, who's the best PM we never had? I even ran a World Cup of the best PMs we never had on uh, Twitter. You may have seen over the weekend, I was whittling 32 names down to 16. We kicked off the show at 10 o'clock with uh, the uh, first round, the quarterfinals, the winner from each one going through. Uh, Let's just talk you through the runners and riders and how it all panned out. Quarterfinal number one, David Miliband, Ken Clark, Alan Johnson and Dennis Healy. Ken Clark came top uh, there with 39% of the vote. In quarterfinal uh, number two, Charles Kennedy came top with 35% of the vote, beating Barbara Castle, uh, Roy Jenkins and Michael Portillo. Now, of course, Times Radio colleague Michael Portillo. In quarterfinal at three, it was Tony Benn, Jeremy Corbyn, Neil Kinnock and John Smith. John Smith took a huge lead to start with until some Corbynistas discovered the whole uh, business uh, happening on Twitter. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, in the end, came top 46%, uh, beating John Smith on 37 uh, Tony Benn on 9% and Neil Kinnock on just 8%. And in the final quarterfinal, uh, it was much closer. Paddy Ashdown came top with 31%, just ahead of Mo Murdom on 28%. Robin Cook, 22 and Ed Miliband on just 19 which created a t- two semi-finals. Uh, it was all uh, p- uh, played out again. Ken Clark losing out to Charles Kennedy. Charles Kennedy uh, winning with 53% of the vote in the first semi-final. The second semi-final, we were denied an all-Lib Dem final. Jeremy Corbyn, 54 Paddy Ashdown, 46. Almost 10,000 people voting in that one in just under an hour. Which meant we had a final of Charles Kennedy and Jeremy Corbyn. You'd have to wait till the end of the episode to find out what happened. But we thought this was a good excuse to find out what it actually takes to become Prime Minister and who really was up to the job of doing uh, the job but never quite got to number 10. So I spoke to Sir Anthony Seldon author of several books, we think five, possibly six books about uh, Prime Ministers and their time in Downing Street. And Steve Richards, journalist, who's got a book out about precisely this, Prime Ministers from uh, Wilson to Johnson. He's also, uh, he revealed, writing a book on uh, the best Prime Ministers we've never had. A perfect booking, if you like. So this is what happened when I spoke to Anthony Seldon and Steve Richards. Let's start with you, Anthony. Um, What is it that we think makes a good Prime Minister? Well, what we think might not be what actually does take a good prime minister. So what you need is is passion to uh, achieve something with the ability uh, to bring that off. And then you need factors like a benign economy uh, and you need a decent majority behind you and you need a relatively united party. And if those mix of five things are... Uh, all positive, then you stand a chance of being uh, a good prime minister. But but look, far more prime ministers uh, since 45 have failed uh, <laughs> than been successes, or at least they've been disappointments uh, compared to the uh, potential that they had. So uh, those five things, Matt. Uh, what about for you, Steve? What makes a good prime minister for you? I, I agree with all those factors, and indeed it's interesting about how many of them have failed and were seen by themselves to be failing. Uh, writing this book on modern prime ministers, 
one of the things that struck me more than anything else was how miserable they were a lot of the time, often with total justification. Uh, but in terms of qualities, I think the qualities required are uh, one of the things that election-winning prime ministers have are that they were natural teachers. They had a capacity to make sense of what they were doing, even if what they were doing was arguably nonsensical. So the big election <laughs> winners of recent times, Harold Wilson, uh, Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair, all could simplify complex things that they were doing. Thatcher was a natural teacher, reducing monetarism to saying, look, you know, my father never spent more than he earned at his grocer's shop. And suddenly, oh, yeah, yeah, that kind of... And and some of the prime ministers with greater depth were poor teachers and were not uh, there for very long. So that's that's one of... But the number of qualities required... uh, cannot be met by any individual human being. Uh, they, they were all flawed in different ways. Um, and it is a titanic task to be prime minister in the modern era. Is, it, is that a, a particular thing, Steve? That in the modern era, there's so much more pressure. The, the sort of 24-7 rolling news thing is obviously a you know a well-known uh, sort of cliche now almost. But the the... Is it just an impossible job to do well now that you're, you 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 arrive in you know in sunshine into applause from your your colleagues and it's all downhill from there? Uh, more or less, uh, they all famously have honeymoons and they do arrive with a great sense of hope and optimism and an under, understandable sense that they are special. They have succeeded to go back to the theme of your polling, uh, where so many haven't. They have become prime minister. And then they start to find it impossibly difficult. Think of the optimism that Theresa May felt briefly as she stood outside number 10, outlining her new sense of priorities. Or John Major winning that extraordinary election victory in 1992, and then living through five years of hell because the demands are so great and it is a cliche but Harold Macmillan was able to read a novel at the height of um, some crisis or other when he was (laughs) Prime Minister to switch off Uh, and now as you say the 24-hour media and the level of scrutiny and actually uh, there have always been huge intentional internal tensions within political parties but 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 they are very difficult to manage at the moment, political, the Tories and Labour parties together. Tories is hard to manage as Labour. Uh, and that didn't used to be the case, I think. So, yeah, I think the demands are measurably tougher now than, say, 50 years ago. One of the things that always strikes me is even when I started covering politics 15 years ago, if you wanted to know what Tory MPs thought about something, you had to phone them all. Um, whereas now, you know, they're constantly, you know, letting us know what they think about everything on social media. And, uh, you know, so you can quite quickly get a sort of a revolt on your hands. It wasn't one that, you know, in the old days we had to sort of organise revolts. And now they just sort of, they, they sort of happen uh, sort of organically, if you like. Um, Anthony, what do you um, think about uh, what Steve was saying there about it being an impossible job in the modern age? Is, is there anyone who can ever uh, rise to the challenge? Or would you have to be, oh, oh, only someone who's so mad to put themselves forward for it is automatically um, going to struggle? Well, I think madness is certainly a pretty good qualification, Mac, for the job. But the fact is that we've had uh, uh, Boris Johnson, who at the moment is not succeeding, Theresa May failing, Cameron 
failing, uh, Brown failing, Blair failing against expectation. Major, as Steve said there, with uh, two, a, a year and a half going well, and then five years of pretty much relentless hell caused by his own uh, backbenchers, principally over Europe. Uh, I mean, it, it is just a very difficult job. How many successful prime ministers uh, since the war? Clement Attlee, uh, Margaret Thatcher. It's pretty hard to find uh, another uh, prime minister who really changed uh, the agenda apart from those two. So, um, yeah, and I, I like what Steve says there about it becoming almost an impossible job because of the, the burden of expectation on uh, that one person and the ability of that one person to deliver against expectations. Uh, Steve, in your book, you, you try to tackle Boris Johnson uh, a, a bit, um, obviously um, with the book coming out this week. Is it possible to make a judgment on Boris Johnson yet and compare him to his predecessors? You can certainly make a comparison with his predecessors. They were all, of course, unique, but he is uniquely different from all of them. And I think we can make that judgment already. Um, so, for example, this is ancient history now, but when he became prime minister, it was a hung parliament. All prime ministers, apart from him, in a hung parliament, obsessively tried to keep their party together and woo other parties just to keep the show on the road. He behaved as if he was a mighty emperor, expelling MPs or withdrawing the whip from MPs from his party and taking on all the other parties. Uh, that's entirely the opposite of what, say, Callaghan, Major Cameron did when they were in hung parliaments. Um, I think we can safely say, although this is more speculative, that all those modern prime ministers from Wilson onwards would have been attending those famous Cobra meetings that Johnson missed and similarly would be more aware of possible eventualities. I mean, to take Blair and Brown, they did it to the point of neurosis. Every possible item coming up on the agenda. They would explore every way it could go, all the consequences in advance. So th this brought about a, a different set of problems, but I don't think there would have been the exam chaos with most of the other modern prime ministers. Uh, Johnson's technique seems to be to stick to something, however precarious it is, until he has to change, and then he changes suddenly. Now, so... so I think we're in the hands of an entirely different type of figure than any of those that have gone uh, since the 1960s. And Anthony, uh, when you uh, come to write your books, looking back on uh, premierships, do you wait until it's over, or are you, are you sort of gathering material all the time, uh, uh, <laughs> just, just so, in case I mean, it all comes I mean, to an end a bit early? Uh, gathering material, but people tend to talk uh, when it all goes wrong at the end. So there is a, a, a golden uh, hour um, when they have, um, when, when the premiership's over um, or when it's beginning to, to go rotten, when uh, they really want to get uh, their side of the story out. I always worry most about those people who most want to talk to me because they will have the most uh, um, uh, biased account uh, themselves. 
Um, but, but then you just do need a bit of time to stand back and, uh, and think. Um, so, you know, thinking about what difference did uh, the Gordon Brown Premiership uh, make? Uh, and his one major achievement was in something that was not foreseen when he took over from Tony Blair in 07, uh, namely the, the, the global financial crisis, which he handled uh, really uh, well. Uh, but as for forwarding his economic and social agenda, well, not so much. Um, so you, you do need a bit of time to stand back and just reflect a bit um, but pretty much we know most of the truths about a premiership uh, when it's over now. That wasn't the case when I first started writing uh, 40 years ago. Um, it was in the same way you were talking uh, about Tory MP Steve was talking about the, 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 them tweeting. We, we know what they're going to be uh, saying. Uh, so people are now much more open. And, you know, even civil servants... Uh, there's a culture whereby they can talk in a way that there wasn't before. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. Uh, it's Matt Chorley on Times Radio speaking to Anthony Seldon and Steve Richards about what makes a good Prime Minister. It's because we're running the, the Times Radio World Cup of the best PMs we never had. Um, as things currently stand in the semi-final on, uh, on Twitter, Ken Clark is on 52%. Charles Kenny's on 48%. Uh, there's been, what, about 1,000 votes in that one. Uh, 1,600 votes so far in the semi-final two, where Jeremy Corbyn and Paddy Ashton are now neck and neck uh, with 50% of the vote each. I mean, somebody's uh, asking why on earth I bother doing this when it was obvious what was going to happen. But um, <laughs> where? <laughs> um, let's part the Jeremy Corbyn thing for a moment because um, that's clearly uh, playing out. I mean, it's interesting that Ken Clark, Charles Kennedy, Jeremy Corbyn, and Panish Down are all relatively recent in the mind. That recency bias uh, obviously plays a part in this, Steve. Yeah, it it, it does. Um, funnily enough. My next book is going to be exactly this, The Prime Ministers We Never Had. Um, but I think I'm going to put, well, I know I'm going to put uh, qualification in that they have to have had a serious chance of being Prime Minister, because then it becomes really interesting as to why they didn't become Prime Minister. And some of those in your nerve-shredding semi-finals don't meet that category. Um, Paddy Ashdown and Charles Kennedy were never going to be prime minister. You could argue they would have been great, but that's a different thing. So they never would have been. Um, who else is in your semi-final? Uh, Ken, Clark, Ken, Ken, Ken Clark and Jeremy Ken Corbyn. Clark. Yeah. Well, they Ken Clark definitely qualifies. Uh, there were moments when people thought he would succeed John Major. And um, uh, he stood in several Tory leadership contests. He said it was his hobby to stand and lose Tory leadership contests. <laughs> and, and Jeremy Corbyn, there is a case that after that 2017 election, people did start to think maybe he will be the next prime minister. So those two, I think, do qualify. And why they didn't get it, we probably haven't got time to discuss. But you're <laughs> right. They are very recent um, examples. Uh, the one that everyone mentions, I think Anthony will be able to confirm or deny this. I think Rab Butler was the one... Uh, Whenever his name's mentioned, it's always, ah, the prime minister we never had. And that's when this phrase first started. Is that right, Anthony, with Rab Butler? Absolutely, I, absolutely yeah. right. But I would go, Matt, uh, for three people 
who are not on your list. Oh, um, excellent. Who, who are, like Grandfather, <laughs> were chancellors of the Exchequer. Um, and uh, that is Hugh Gateskill, who uh, would have become prime minister, presumably in 1964, had he not died. So that's another qualification, Steve, for your list uh, to be alive. Mm. I mean, that's really... <laughs> yes. Good. We can, we can you know, ask questions about some of the prime ministers we've had, but it seems to be a probable qualification. So he died in, <laughs> tragically in 1963. Harold Wilson took over, who everyone... Uh, talks up, but actually achieved incredibly little himself. Ministers around him, uh, like Roy Jenkins, uh, Dennis Healy, both vastly abler than him, achieved much more in terms of the government's successes. Um, So certainly Hugh Gates would have been a magnificent Labour leader, far more in the mould of Clement Attlee than hapless uh, uh, weaving uh, overly political Harold Wilson, underly principled. Uh, and then I go for um, uh, another Chancellor, uh, Ian McLeod, again uh, died, uh, pretty serious uh, blow to your prospects. Um, <laughs> uh, died in 1971. <laughs> but, but the Tory, who was who so much, I mean, you know, who can't love Ken Clark? Uh, but but a much much better uh, candidate was was Heza. I mean Heza, mm. you know, had the charisma and the ambition and the ideas across the waterfront. Too many prime ministers get into number ten, uh, driven by ambition without a clue about what they really want to do. I mean Theresa May, for example, really. Um, uh, her ideas were Nick Timothy's uh, and Fiona Hills. They were not her ideas. She didn't have an, an idea. By the time Gordon Brown became prime minister in 2007, uh, they were uh, pretty much uh, over. Uh, so uh, he had that charisma, the energy, the passion, the ability to bring people on side uh, and the ideas across the waterfront that you need to have to be a successful prime minister. And by the way, Um, Matt, if I could just say, some of the best prime ministers did become prime ministers, but became prime ministers too late, so that they were pretty much burnt out. I mean, you know, Gordon Brown, if he'd taken over in 97, would have been a very different prime minister um, uh, to how he was 10 years later. Anthony Eden, classically, in 1955, having waited for 17 uh, years, burnt out. You know, and we've got to ask questions about Boris Johnson. Had he become prime minister in 2016, would have got Britain out of uh, Europe um, uh, much earlier and uh, with with you know far more uh, energy, perhaps, uh, than he's had. So another category. Uh, yeah, and I suppose the, one of the things that struck me coming up with the uh, the original list was the numbers of people who had always been... There were some people who, like Ken Clark, constantly throwing their hat in the ring, only for someone to come along and throw it back at them again, uh, repeatedly. And then you've got your sort of... Your David Miliband, constantly waiting for the right moment. You know, he didn't uh, uh, move against um, uh, Gordon Brown. Uh, he, he then, you know, assumed it was going to be in the bag with his brother. Um, uh, Alan Johnson was another one. He talked about running when Tony Blair t- stepped down. He talked about running when Gordon Brown stepped down. Actually, sometimes what, one of the qualifications is just having a bit of gumption and a bit of, um, uh, you know, get up and go to, to to go for it and to not be, you know, waiting for the right moment, Steve. You're absolutely right. And, and you've given, I think, one of the 
uh, solutions to the mystery as to why some of these people do not become prime minister. Um, for this book I'm writing at the moment, I've just done one on a chapter on Roy Jenkins. And it's, as Anthony says, he was a bigger figure than Wilson. So why did he not become prime minister? And in Jenkins' memoir, he reflects that he was just not ruthless enough. There were moments when he could have made a move and for various reasons he chose not to do it. And that explains partly why uh, David Miliband is one of these prime ministers we never had. There were moments, um, uh, but with, with a big qualification coming up, there were moments when a lot of people thought that he would make his move against Gordon Brown and become uh, Labour Prime Minister, and at moments he encouraged people to think that he would, and then he didn't do it. Um, and you compare it, and Jenkins compares himself to Thatcher, who made her move against Heath uh, with an absolute determined ruthlessness. And that's one of the qualifications you need to be a Prime Minister rather than a Prime Minister we never had. By the way, if Miliband had made a move against Gordon Brown, there's absolutely no guarantee it would have succeeded, which is one of the reasons that stopped him from doing it. But it is, but you do need an absolute brutal ruthlessness uh, if you want to get the crown. And that's always struck me that both David Cameron and Nick Clegg, they went for it when they were young and it should have been someone else's go. And actually sometimes yeah. just that, that sort of the, the sort of slight um, steel running through them of just, no, I'm going to go for it. It might not work. You know, and William Hague was the same. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, go for it um, and see how things uh, actually end up padding out. Yeah. Um, can we talk about, um, briefly about uh, John Smith? Because one of the interesting uh, conversations coming out of the, the poll I was doing over the weekend was some people said, oh, love John Smith. He's very much the one that uh, the one that got away um, because he sadly died when uh, in 1994 when he looked like he was going to take Labour to uh, election victory in 97 but then others blame him for the fact that Labour didn't win in 1992 that it was his, his shadow budget uh, which um, the Tories call it a tax bombshell where do you think uh, history actually judges uh, John Smith Steve? I think he would have won if he had um, uh, fought as Labour leader in uh, 1997. Um, it would have been a very different kind of government than the one that uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown uh, led. But um, as Anthony uh, chronicles brilliantly in his book on John Major, that was a government imploding. So I think John Smith is one of those who would have been prime minister had he lived. Um, but it, it, he yeah. was a very different kind of figure, in some ways more self-confident than uh, Blair and Brown because he had served in a cabinet um, but he came from a different tradition of Scottish politics and you're right that the 92 shadow budget was a catastrophic misjudgment um, and certainly I know Neil Kinnock feels that John Smith has a lot to answer for for that 1992 Labour defeat having said that he was much more popular in the polls than Neil Kinnock in 1992 but I do think he would have been Prime Minister uh, just fine, before I let so, you go there. Yeah, I, go I mean, I, I, remember, um, I remember talking to John Major about it. it. It was, if I remember correctly, the 12th of May, 1994, and he died when he was shaving first thing in the morning. And his personal detective, John Majors, came into the cabinet room to tell him that the leader of the opposition, John Smith, had died. And John Major described what went through his mind. His first thought was that's terribly, terribly sad, uh, the wife, the children, 
Uh, and then a moment later, another thought was, uh, oh my goodness, uh, that's going to mean uh, Tony Blair. And um, so even I think, it, you know, at that moment, uh, that shows in a way uh, something about major, but something about the politics at the time and how even in May 94, Blair was such a formidable uh, figure like Harold Wilson was, who in many ways was a much more effective leader of the opposition uh, between 63 and 64 than he was a prime minister. Um, and I think John Smith had more gravitas. I mean, the significant charge against Tony Blair that Andrew Adonis in his authorised biography is going to have to tackle is where was the gravitas? Where was the maturity? Great to be the youngest prime minister for 170 years. But did he have the seriousness that you need to have that gravitas to be prime minister of a unified country? Just, a huge loss, John Smith. Just before I let you both go, a single name this time. Uh, Anthony, the best PM we never had. Wow. Um, um, Gateskill. Gateskill. Steve? I'm going to do the one that would have changed the course of history over the last 40 years. I think if Heseltine had become Prime Minister in November 1990, we would probably still be in the European Union now. That was Anthony Seldon and Steve Richards speaking to me on Times Radio. Now, the news I know you've been waiting for. Who came top in the Times Radio World Cup of Best PMs we never had? With 58% of the vote, 12,300 votes cast in total, with 58% of the vote, Jeremy Corbyn, Charles Kennedy managing only 42% of the vote, and my Twitter mentions have uh, gone into total meltdown. People uh, absolutely furious that I ran a poll in which their mate, Jeremy Corbyn came top. Uh, make of that uh, what you will. People get incredibly cross about things that happen on social media, even if, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, if you want to stay in touch with us, you can always follow me on uh, Twitter at Matt Jolly or at Times Radio to get the latest news on what is happening on the programme. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.